It's time for Cadillac on Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac on Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello, friends. Welcome to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. We come to you today ready to turn the calendar from September to October and, more important, ready to put the grip around COVID-19 once and for all. The past several weeks have been an incredible challenge to the amazing frontline caregiver staff who have so courageously been healing and comforting the overwhelming number of COVID patients who have filled our area hospitals. It has also placed tremendous strain on the entire healthcare systems and in some cases putting it in a precarious state. Fortunately, this latest surge is hopefully beginning to turn back in the right direction with hospitalizations and cases beginning to decline, if not plateau, and the rate of vaccinations is on the rise ever so slightly. So today we begin with the latest on all of it with a valued guest of this program the past 18-plus months, and that's Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. So, Heather, the sun is out on a Wednesday evening. Uh, Does that anywhere uh, connect to hopefully we're maybe seeing some promising signs with this pandemic, at least the latest surge? Well, a little bit of sunshine, I'll, I'll put it that way, Jim. We are, like you said, we are seeing a bit of a plateauing of our case rate. But with that said, it's very important to see where it's plateauing and unfortunately at a very, very high rate. So we use that word plateau and it always sounds like, great, things are looking better. But actually when it plateaus at a very high rate, that continues to have us concerned. What we really need to see is the sustained decrease. And as we've said time and time on this show, it is so extremely important that for those of the people in the community who love to look at data and you get focused on watching data, 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 you're going to see a blip up, a blip down, and that happens for a lot of different reasons, and it could be simply how long it took tests to be run at the lab, when we got the results back. So don't look at those daily little ups, those little downs. Look at trends, and that's why we tend to like to look things at, you know, a one- to two-week time frame. What is it trending over that period of time? And that's where we're seeing, you know, potentially a little bit of plateauing happening in general. However, there are still pockets of age groups in our community that we are significantly concerned about. You know, the 20 to 39-year-old age group might be trending down a little bit, but it's that 15 to 19-year-old group that is really on a, a sharpward, sharp upward trend, perhaps heading to a little bit of a plateau, but it is still rising. And then the rate in that school-aged child that's 5 to 14, we're seeing a pretty steep uh, vertical rise in, in that age group. So when we look in general at that 50 to 15 to 39-year-old age group again, they do account for one of the biggest sources of spread and really the greatest opportunity for vaccination since um, that's the, the focus we're trying to get is that age group vaccinated and uh, help protect them from getting the infection. And then the other area that we look really closely at is long-term care facilities. And unfortunately, we have seen significant activity once again happening in both the residents and the employees of our long-term care facilities. So 
you know, there's slightly good news, but I don't want us to get over-optimistic, which could result in, in letting our guard down. We're still, as a community, in an extremely serious state of affairs right now with this virus. You mentioned the hospitalization rates, and absolutely, things are looking a little bit better in that regard. But we also have a very high death rate. And that we need to look at very cautiously is, is our hospitalization rate, unfortunately, due to death? Is it staffing issues? Exactly what is behind that? Again, we're happy to see it trending down over a matter of, um, you know, a week or so here. But, uh, again, I don't want to get overly optimistic until I start seeing a consistent downward trend rather than a plateau. Wow, what a summary, because there's so many different elements of that to hit. Let's maybe stay with the hospitals, and later in our program, we'll visit with the head of Catholic's emergency department. But you talk about that death rate, and and I know one of the stats that you had shared in the past is that the month of September was a trend that was already like doubling or tripling the numbers in July. Is that that where that level of concern is? And I know that what you always say is the deaths— that are reported or happen that usually lag with those increased rates. Right, and that unfortunately is what we're seeing when when we report the deaths out every Friday. Unfortunately, the last few Fridays um, have been rather grim. And I think when we look at the ages of the people, I think that's what our community needs to look at and take very, very seriously. You know, my life has been involved with infectious disease, my entire career as a nurse, and viruses come and go. Uh, This one has been probably one of the scariest ones that I have dealt with in my career because of the serious side effects of it. It's not a simple virus. It is killing people. It is causing long-term damage in people, and our community needs to look at this data look at our rate of death, look at the ages of the people that are dying, and take it extremely serious. And let's go uh, age-wise. Let's start with the long-term care issue, which, as you mentioned, uh, is obviously very concerning. Why? Why the uptick in the long-term care arena? Well, we know that uh, many of our long-term care residents in the past have been vaccinated, Um, We're still working on trying to make sure that resident is vaccinated. So those programs are ongoing to make sure they are as vaccinated as possible. However, we know with this Delta variant, it's highly contagious, and we do have those vaccine breakthrough cases. This vaccine was never anticipated to be 100% preventative. But just like with the flu vaccine, we will get breakthroughs, especially in the elderly population. Seems to be holding true with this vaccine as well. Coupled the Delta variant with a workforce that tends to be rather unstable. So long-term care facilities have a high turnover of staff and making sure that they have a well-vaccinated staff to protect those long-term care residents can be extremely challenging. Plus, we want to visit our loved ones in those facilities. When we know that our community has a very, very high rate of COVID virus swirling around, anytime we go into that long-term care facility to visit our loved one, we risk the chance of bringing something in to them. And that's how things, that's how outbreaks get started in these long-term care facilities. Typically, 
staff-related or visitor-related. So the issue is, again, I guess it comes back to before we take our first break, we'll get into that vaccination issue. There are people that aren't vaccinated that are that are potentially infecting other people, perhaps unbeknownst to them. Right. And that's where, you know, as much as we hate the idea of vaccine mandates, we were really counting on on people, especially in the healthcare professions, to to get vaccinated, not only to protect themselves, but certainly to protect the patients that have entrusted their care in that that healthcare worker. And we need those healthcare workers to get vaccinated. They're an integral part of stopping the spread of this virus. Visiting with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. When we come back, she touched on another age group that is seeing one of the probably the most largest uh, demographic rise in cases, and that's the youngest of our population. And we'll get some more information on that and what we can all do to help bring those rates down as well. Do that right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. We are visiting with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And in our first segment, she gave us a somewhat uh, continuous sobering look at where we're standing with COVID-19, but uh, where there is rays of optimism, uh, we, we touched on those as well. And Heather, I want to revisit the, the younger age group that you touched on that uh, I think you described to me as a nearly steeply, a nearly vertical rise in cases among the younger age groups. Talk a little bit about that and, and what's causing that. Well, early on in in this pandemic, as we were honestly just trying to figure out exactly what this virus does to people, what age group it's going to be more problematic in, we weren't really focusing on on the children. We really saw this as problematic in that senior population, um, the elderly, people with immune system problems. But over the 18 months, we've come to the realization that, yeah, kids can catch this too. Kids can spread it too. And I think when we look at our data going back to, say, September 1st, we've noticed that there's a 30% increase in total cases. Excuse me, 30% of the total cases are actually in that school age group. So we have very good evidence that that school age population does catch this. And if they're catching it, they're certainly capable of spreading it. So when we do our contact tracing and our investigations into just where our kids catching this, you know, we're very confident when we say this isn't a transmission in the classroom environment. Our schools are doing very well. They're doing exemplary in mitigating the spread within the school. The kids do great in school. The teachers, the staff, they're compliant. They know what they need to do because none of them want to go back to virtual learning again. So the schools are really committed to making sure everybody's doing what they can not to spread it, and that is very obvious. It's not spreading in the classroom. Where we're seeing it happen, however, is in the sports, the um, after-school activities, the parties, the, the, the gatherings that kids are starting to have now that school's back together, let's all get together and do things. Um, and we have traced it to various 
parties and gatherings and events that are actually in the child's private life, not even connected with the school necessary, necessarily or in those sporting athletic environments that we see a lot of kids in. And then it spreads, especially with Delta variant, it spreads so quickly through the family and sibling to sibling. And that's why we're seeing that age group uh, skyrocketing right now. It is not the transmission in the school. So if I'm a parent and my son or daughter is not vaccinated, they're under age 12, and they go to school and find out one of their classmates or is had COVID, how do they find that out? And I guess, what should they do? What should, what should a parent do for their, I guess, under 12-year-old child uh, when they send them to school? Sure. The important thing to remember is that's what our contract, contact tracers are there to help with. That's why it's so important to talk to them when they call. They help you figure out messaging and who you need to talk to and how that should happen so that those people who were potentially exposed to you get the information they need in a confidential way so that they can protect themselves. And we've been working very, very closely with the schools to help guide them in how to message in all the very unique circumstances that each of these classrooms have. And and every school does it slightly different, but... Um, you know, they're all doing such a good job, and we've worked very closely with them over the last 18 months and, and will continue, continue to throughout the rest of this pandemic. But the most important message I can give a parent is if you think your child's sick, keep them home. Time and time and time again where we do see kids getting sick, it's often, well, you know, they, they had a little allergy problem. They had a little headache. They were running just a little fever, and I didn't think anything of it. And bingo, it is COVID. You have to take seriously even minor illnesses, minor uh, changes in your, your child and how they're feeling because kids can exhibit symptoms much differently. We have found historically many times a child does not appear sick, yet we find out that, yeah, they have good reason to, to be ill that kids just tend not to show illness like adults do. So please take take those minor illnesses very serious with, with your child and get your kids tested. Keep them home. Keep them home. Cannot stress that more. And, it, and is the point you're seeing, as you touched on the contact tracing piece of this, where it hits a family that has, you know, maybe three or four kids of different age groups, and it ends up going through the entire family, so potentially, you know, it, it's that's that Delta spread, especially made worse with this Delta. Right, right. Delta has really shown us that it can spread extremely quickly through families, through groups, through parties, um, through sporting events. When we look at what's happening at some of our high school athletics where you're supposed to be wearing masks, but then as soon as people get through the gate, off comes the mask. And the assumption is, well, we're outdoors, what's the risk? Well, you're in a crowded stadium. You are making a lot of noise, and you're, you're hollering and calling out to the team and laughing. And, and all of those organisms in your nose and your mouth are spewing out and exposing the people all around you. And that's why it's so important 
to continue to wear those masks anytime you're in close contact with a lot of people. Before we let you go, a couple of more minutes. I, I want to touch on a lot of ground to cover as usual. But uh, first of all, vaccination rates. Are we seeing any uh, continued uptick in the vaccination rates in Benton and Franklin and Walla Walla counties? An ever, ever so slightly uptick. And probably a lot of it due to the fact that many employers are requiring to have their, va- their, their employees vaccinated. So we are seeing a, a very slight increase, but unfortunately both Benton and Franklin County are still way under where we would expect them to be at this point in time and way under the level that would offer significant protection for our community. And we look at the total population vaccinated, and that does include the number of kids who are not eligible yet. But when we say that Benton County has 45.5% of the total population vaccinated, that tells me we have a whole lot of people at risk for bad outcomes should they catch this infection. Because again, we've got very, very strong evidence that if you get vaccinated, you could still get COVID. But if you're vaccinated and get COVID, you are significantly less likely to end up in the hospital and you are less likely to die from this. So this vaccination is so important to to prevent you from catching it or to prevent you from getting a really bad outcome should you catch it. And I should say, if we can put that in maybe a, a comparative number Say if you take a thousand people and you give Benton and Franklin the benefit of the doubt of saying fifty percent, that means five hundred people out of a thousand people are not vaccinated. You're exactly right, and that is a huge risk to our community. Um, that's a lot of potential spread. That's a lot of potential illness, and unfortunately, death. Now the word booster comes into effect. I know uh, with the Pfizer vaccine, give us a little unpack on that. I know it's just for the Pfizer vaccinated only, right? Right. Uh, We've only heard about boosters and third dose with regard to the Pfizer vaccine. Moderna and J&J are still being looked at, and we anticipate at some point in time we'll get directives on that. But the boosters were approved for persons over the age, you know, 65 and older, at high risk of exposure or have underlying medical conditions. And it's important for people to get that booster because again, we're just learning about this virus. We're just learning about this vaccine as we move along. We know it's a very safe vaccine. We're not seeing bad reactions to a, a, a problematic rate. But what we are seeing is again, getting vaccinated can mean the difference between severe illness and death or us making it through this pandemic um, with our health intact. So if you are eligible to get your booster, you had to have had a Pfizer and you need to look at the date. And very soon, majority of people who had started to get the Pfizer vaccine when we were first offering it will be eligible. And so I would get your cards out, get those um, CDC vaccination cards out. Again, if you're having trouble finding it, it is available. The information is available in the state registry. And you can go on our website and learn how to get that information and see when you did get your vaccine. And that can help you determine when to get your booster dose. 
Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. Thanks so much for joining us again. And I have one last 10 second that I will share the importance of getting your flu shot. Those are also available. And even if you want to get your COVID vaccine, it's okay to get your flu vaccine, I'm told, at the same time. Back with the second half of Cadillac on Call right after this. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. You've just heard a latest perspective in the face of what has been a burdensome past couple of months due to the latest surge of COVID in our region. Hospitalizations is one area that are thankfully beginning to decline, opening up much-needed capacity for our hospitals to take care of all patients who need their services. For a real-time update at Cadillac Regional Medical Center, we're happy to welcome to the program Dr. John Matheson. He's the medical director of the Cadillac Emergency Department's which include the ER on the main campus in Richland and the freestanding emergency room in central Kennewick. Thanks, Dr. Matheson, for taking some of your time this evening. Um, what is it like? I know the, the my pleasure. Are the hospitalized COVID numbers, I understand, are, have come down a little bit since uh, the peak of a few weeks ago? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we are seeing a, a little bit of a downturn uh, in the numbers. Uh, which is encouraging. It's certainly something that we have been hoping for and and are very happy to see. I think uh, it's important to keep in perspective just because we're starting the downward slope. We're still, if you look at the curve, we're still up high. So it's not that all is well, but at least instead of continuing to go upward, right now it looks like it's starting to go down. Another thing, though, that uh, I think we've all learned through the last year and a half is that it's really hard to predict what's next. And while it is encouraging and we, we want to see this go down, we still are seeing significant numbers of cases. Uh, we still have a lot of very sick people with this. Uh, it is the, the hospital system, well, systems throughout the region and, and in many, many parts of the country are still uh, stretched and to the point of sometimes being overwhelmed. But you're right, it is a hopeful sign that we're at least heading the right direction, and, and we're, we're happy to see that. From an emergency department perspective, give our listeners uh, an understanding of, of what kind of strain that is put on the ER, just because obviously people come and go from the hospital, they're admitted, they're discharged. It's not like a hotel where check-in time is at 4 and you check out at 11 the next day. It's 24-7, constantly changing. Sure. Well, and and the emergency department is one part of the system, and, and we all uh, work together and, and when one part is strained, it, it affects all of the others. And so if you think about it, hospitals run uh, very near capacity most of the time um, with a little bit of room to, to take these influxes. So we've had the, the same patient population we've always had, but now you add this disease, this COVID-19, with a significant number of very sick people on top of the people who are coming into the hospital already. Add to that the, the fact that 
the average length of stay in the hospital once somebody gets admitted to the hospital with COVID is significantly longer than the average hospital length of stay generally. Certainly there are other conditions that can be longer. But So now we've got more people coming to the hospital. When they get there, they stay longer. And so it has filled many of the beds. And with that, we, we see staff who get ill. Uh, we're, we're susceptible to the same illness. Um, and there have been some issues with some staffing. And so with all of that, the hospital has been very full. And so the emergency department, as we get more people coming into the emergency department, uh, a certain number of the patients that come into the emergency department need to be admitted to the hospital. When we, we don't have a room for them, those then back up the emergency department. And so then we see backups into the waiting room and longer time to get to see people. And it's been challenging for, from that standpoint, because if this were a one hospital issue, we could look at sending patients elsewhere when necessary. That's not something we want to do, but, but it would be an option. However, every hospital in the region, every hospital beyond our region uh, throughout the country has been struggling so often it, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to find a bed anywhere in the state or beyond to send people. And so it, it has been a challenge to uh, the emergency department and patients seeking care. But we are a 24-7 operation. We adapt. We are ready for these kinds of things. And, and while we can't get to people as fast as we would like, uh, and we know that the, it's not as um, not the experience we often would choose. We we triage people and and find a way to take care of of the sickest people first. Well, and I'm going to digress for one moment and share a personal uh, case in point of what you just described because I know Cadillac receives patients not only from the Tri Cities area but for a lot of the rural smaller hospitals uh, out of Eastern Washington and Northern Oregon. And I have a family member who faced that very same situation just a week ago, and it was a cardiac-related issue and was unable to come to Cadillac where his physician was because Cadillac had no bed. So I guess that's a real-time, firsthand example, but is that just, that's just one yeah. example of what you've seen many times over, right? Well, and we see it on both sides. We want to be able to say yes when another facility is calling, and we know there's a patient in need. And so... Well, we are that referral center that receives patients, and we have not been able to say yes as often as we would like to. In fact, we've had to say no more often than we've said yes because we just don't have the resources to take care of those patients. And we are fortunate that we have a facility like Cadillac that has the resources it does so that most of the patients that need to be admitted and need care can find it here in the Tri-Cities. But there are some things where we can't, take care of it here and needs a tertiary care center, uh, something more than what we can even do at Cadillac. And then we face that problem of trying to find a center. And so we're, um, we're kind of in the middle of some people trying to come to us and some that we're trying to send out. And again, I'm, we're fortunate we have the resources we do, but, but it has been challenging and it's, and it's heartbreaking when we can't get families uh, or get patients to stay close to their families or be brought closer to their families when they need that support. 
always have so many questions for you, but I have time for just maybe one more because I know we're entering into the cold and flu season. And normally we've had you on historically to talk about the importance of that because I know that's very important to you because I think you used to tell me that thirty to 40,000 people a year die of the flu. But certainly maybe a concluding comment, not only on flu vaccination, but I know a lot of this Delta variant is driven by the unvaccinated. What's your message uh, as the head of the ERs at Cadillac for people, not only for the flu shots, but for the unvaccinated for COVID? The people who have been reluctant to get the vaccine are, are certainly sincere and wanting to do the right thing. Um, I, I have no... Uh, no bias other than wanting to do the right thing for myself, for my patients, for my family. Um, and the evidence is clear that the vaccine is safe. The vaccine is effective. Uh, we, we've seen this in our own experiences with patients in the hospital. Um, certainly, as we look at flu season, uh, it, it's a little... Um, little uncertain what this flu season is going to look like last year with all of the social distancing and so forth we had virtually no flu which i think uh, supports the fact that masking and social distancing and so forth are effective as we go into this season i think that uh, um, as people are a little more uh, interactive and and so i think that the chance of seeing more flu is high Uh, there are some projections that based on uh, not having flu last year, we could have more this year. We just don't know. But one thing that is that is almost certain is that flu and COVID combined could be very serious. And so the, this year is as important, if not more important than any other, to get that flu vaccine. Because uh, especially with COVID around, if you have both together, uh, it could be it could be devastating. And so. Uh, definitely encourage uh, vaccination for both COVID and the flu. Well, Dr. John Matheson, pass along our thanks to all of your team and throughout uh, the healthcare system that you work with at Catholic and those that you encounter elsewhere. We appreciate the great work that you and everyone is doing to continue to, to do this battle as it seems like it's never going to end. Dr. John Matheson, the ER Medical Director at Catholic Regional Medical Center. Back with our final minutes at Catholic on Call in just a moment. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Our final segment still has a bit of a COVID focus, but shines a light on an annual emphasis on breast cancer awareness. October, as you probably know, the traditional time when we emphasize the importance of screening for breast cancer and honoring and remembering those directly impacted by this disease. First two events to tell you about happening on October the 1st at 11 a.m. on Friday the 1st on the Cadillac Hospital campus in Richland, an annual flag raising commemorating breast cancer awareness. The flag is personally sewn by hospital volunteer Jan Jacobs, and it flies over the hospital throughout the month of October. Now, later on Friday, the Tri-Cities Cancer Center Foundation will hold a lighting ceremony with a similar purpose as the flag, putting the attention on breast cancer awareness and making it front and center. Both the Cancer Center and Catholic Foundations gratefully receive great community support to uh, support cancer patients from throughout a variety of programs and services 
including free mammograms for patients who cannot afford them. For more information on foundation, the both foundations, you can visit tccancer.org or cadlick.org slash foundation. They will gratefully receive any financial support you would like to give. To round out our program today, we're happy to please, uh, happy and pleased to welcome Dr. Sherry Zhao, a radiation oncologist with the Catholic Oncology Services, which is located on the Cancer Center campus in Kennewick. Dr. Zhao, thanks so much for taking some time with us. And maybe from your view as a physician who works with these kinds of patients, just a, a quick comment about uh, where we are during this time of month and what people, especially women, need to know about. All right. Thank you, Jim. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me on to talk about this very important topic. Um, so in the month of October, obviously, everybody is um, very into breast cancer awareness. Um, I, I think in general, uh, the community is very well aware of it. Um, I don't think we have seen uh, many more screening programs as a result of breast cancer awareness because we do such a great job the rest of the year. So where are we? I guess we have to hack, you know, COVID has impacted everything, but in the cancer arena and especially in breast cancer, is, is do you think it's impacted uh, people's uh, willingness or desire or concern about getting their screenings that they should? Um, certainly. So one thing that we as oncologists have all noticed and talked about amongst ourselves is that there seems to be what we call a stage migration where in, in general, when you have adequate screening um, and patients who are willing to go to these screening programs, you're able to catch cancers at an earlier stage, whereas now there's more advanced stage cancers that are being seen by us. And then that includes breast cancer as well? I will say um, in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, last March to June or so, um, most hospitals around the country did um, try to minimize elective procedures and screening programs as a result of that. And in that particular era, we were seeing a lot more um, advanced stage breast cancers, but I think things have returned more to normal. From your view, as we go into this month, and, and I hopefully women are aware that are in these categories, understand and know the importance of it, but from what you see in your view as a, as a physician who takes care of all cancer patients, but those that have breast cancer as well. What's your advice to them about the importance of mammogram? Right. So breast cancer is an interesting type of cancer. Um, One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer sometime in their life, which is an exceedingly high number, far higher than any other type of cancer that affects women. Um, That being said, though, um, there is definitely an upside to it, which is it it is a very curable disease, especially when caught early. Um, Even when it's caught in advanced stages, the cure rates are very good in comparison to other cancers. Um, But the important part to emphasize is that, you know, we can treat some very early tumors um, with just a minor surgery alone, but that can be escalated to a very major surgery uh, with a complete lymph node dissection, which often causes things like arm swelling and range of motion deficits, followed by chemotherapy, and then followed by a lot more intense radiation to the entire chest wall. Um, so there's a big difference in terms of the intensity of treatment and um, the associated morbidities. So if you're caught, you know, if your cancer is detected at an early stage, definitely the prognosis is better. But on top of that, the side effects from treatment will be much better.
We have just a minute or so left, but uh, from your view, again, uh, for folks, whether it's breast cancer screening or in general, what's your advice and takeaway message for our listeners this evening? Right. I, I have nothing but very, very positive things to say about cancer screening. Um, it's one of the things that really saves a lot of lives, I would say, um, almost more so than the advances in treatment that we have had, um, just because of, again, the, the side effect profile with treating cancers when they're caught early, um, as well as, you know, for something like lung cancer screening for smokers, um, when that study came out, there was a 20% survival benefit for earlier detection of lung cancers, uh, which is far more than a lot of the treatments that have come out since then. So a lot of optimism surrounding the, in the cancer world, whether it's in the, the treatment, but it's certainly in the screening and the, and the diagnostic side. Absolutely. That, that is one of the, the most crucial aspects of cancer care. I'm going to give you a, f- a final 30 seconds, uh, maybe a personal question. Uh, you, and it's probably not fair to have you sum it up in 30 seconds, but you you work with patients that they're most vulnerable. Is that why you became and chose the path of, uh, of radiation oncology that you did? Yes, yes. Um, I, I would say that I went through all of my rotations in medical school and really liked all of them. Um, I feel like oncology is uh, a field where you get to spend a lot of time with patients and build that lasting relationship. Um, And also, cancer patients are really inspiring. Um, I'm inspired by my patients every single day. Well, we're so grateful that you could carve out a few minutes of your time to share your wisdom with us. And we thank you for all that you do for the patients and the team over at the Cancer Center Complex. Dr. Sherry Zhao, a radiation oncologist. Thanks for joining us. And thank you as well to listening to Cadillac on Call. We'll talk again next Wednesday night.